Let's sing these words together this morning. I was buried beneath my shame. But who could carry that kind of weight? It wasn't my tomb till I met you.
Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate if he could take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes. So they took away the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. When the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? There was an earthquake because an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes was white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear that they became like dead men. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. The angel told the woman, do not be afraid because I know you are looking for the Lord Jesus who was crucified. When they went into the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found in the stone, the two, uh, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Peter went out with the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And they, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples, they went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she stooped and as she wept and stooped to look into the tomb, she saw two angels, hold up, in white, 
sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. Jesus said, Jesus standing there. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said, Rabboni? Which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples that I have seen the Lord. Take it away, boys. Come, let us worship our King. Come, let us bow at His feet. He has done great things. See what our Savior has done.
hearts this morning in a word of prayer, if we would. God, we remember that you are the one who's from the beginning, You're the one who is and the one who is to come. You are faithful to your promises. And God, you are the one who overcame death, who conquered the grave. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty grave. We thank you that that story, as Paul says in Ephesians, we're now raised with Christ, and so that's our story. God, may you be at the center of it all. We thank you for this morning and this day to remember you. It's in the great and the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Good morning and welcome to Groton Bible Chapter for Resurrection Sunday. We're glad you're here. How neat was that, Tony, getting the word? That was pretty sweet. The last two times it gave me chills both times. It was just, it was just really, really appreciate that. Also, some of you may be wondering, who are these people up here? leading us in worship. I don't know those faces. Well, our uh, worship pastor, Johnny, and his wife decided to uh, get pregnant such that their babies do this week. And we had to plan accordingly. So you may see Johnny running around, uh, but Andy Needham and, uh, and Bethany Needham, his wife, came down from Bria, their friend Nick, to lead worship for us this Sunday. And we are super, super grateful. Yeah, you can give them a clap. Three years ago, when I was finishing grad school, Andy Needham's actually the one who told me, he's like, hey, I know this church down in Groton, you should check them out. And so, again, it's really neat for him, him to be leading us. If you, are, uh, if you are new here this morning, whether you were dragged here by a mom, uh, perhaps you uh, haven't been here since Christmas and you just felt like it was a good day to stop by, maybe you're just really curious about what the Christians believe about this Easter thing, whatever it might be, we'd love the opportunity to connect with you today. And so feel free online, you can click the I'm new button. If you're here, you can stop by our welcome center, but we would love the chance to meet you if you're so willing. With that church, we're gonna take a moment to greet one another via text or wave. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Well, it's been a long time since I've heard the sustained cry of a baby in my house. You see, I have three teenage sons and a 10-year-old little girl, so it's been a long time. And so imagine this one day, this afternoon, when I came home to my house and I heard a baby crying and continuing to cry and continuing to cry. And so I investigated and, and searched the house and found at one end of our home in our rec room where the kids hang out, there were two teenage boys, neither of whom were my children, working feverishly to pacify this little one. And you know, what was fascinating, and I'll give credit where credit is due, is that they were doing a great job. They were giving the baby its bottle, they were burping it, but they were just unable to shut it off. <laughs> you see, while it sounded like the sound of new life, it was counterfeit. You see, it wasn't a real baby. My youngest son, Nathan, Nathan, is taking child development, and he had to bring home one of these robo-babies. You know what I'm talking about? Now, if you took child development, you're my age or older, when you took child development, you had to bring home a raw egg. 
and try to get it through the weekend without cracking it. Some of you remember that. None of you succeeded, be honest. But here were these two teenage boys working to take this life and make it shut off, so to speak. And the question that I found myself asking was, where on earth is my son who, for whom this is his responsibility? So I searched the house some more. I actually found him down the far other end of the house on a FaceTime call with some friends, some other friends. You know, it's interesting that when we talk about life this time of year, we're talking about the best life this morning, it, it, it's the great time, greatest time of the year to talk about it, right? There's the, the budding of all the flora and fauna that's coming forth this time of year. Uh, there, there are the, the chorus of songbirds returning to our area. Please take time in April and May to sit somewhere quiet and listen to the songbirds. Or there's my favorite, the spring peepers. Spring peepers in the ponds and the swamps that let us know that it is indeed springtime and there is new life. Beyond new life, just the idea of the things in the created order that enrich our lives, that provide greater meaning to life. Things like standing on the edge of a, of a vista of a beautiful landscape and taking it in. You know, our family had the opportunity last summer to see the Grand Canyon for the first time. And unless you've seen it personally, it's impossible to describe what it's like to stand on the edge of that canyon with it fully filling your field of vision and have your breath taken away. It's inspiring. It's life-giving. Maybe for you, it's sitting by the water, the ocean, listening to the rhythm of the surf. Or perhaps by a babbling brook. Or maybe just being in your backyard and sitting in a quiet place and watching a wildlife scene take place right in front of you, unbeknownst to them. What are the things that enrich and give meaning to your life? Think of the tenderness of a kiss and the intimacy of passion, romantic passion. Think of the achievements of your children or grandchildren or the satisfaction of the accomplishment of something significant in your vocational world. What are the things that enrich life, that give life? You know, Paul Tripp said this. He said that the things, the created things, the glories of the created world, are meant to be glorious, but they're not meant to be the thing from which we get life. They are not the thing in, of, in and of themselves. And what we're looking at this morning, the case that we're making to you, if you've gathered here today, either in this room or in your home, is that the life that we truly long for is found in a risen Savior. That's the best life. And so I'm going to pray. I invite you to pray with me as we open God's word and we ask him to speak to our hearts this morning, uh, no matter where we're coming from today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come into your presence this morning, Lord, and I don't know every story in the room or those watching online in their living rooms or wherever they are. I don't know what brings them here this morning, God. But I, I know, Lord God, that you do. And I suspect that all of us have times, Lord, where we're, we're looking for inspiration and meaning and purpose from the things of this world. Lord, as we open your word this morning, God, would you speak to us from your word, the Bible, not my words, God, but your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray that things are clear to my friends this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with an assumption this morning before we look at our, our scripture text. And uh, I'm admittedly pulling this right out of uh, Andy Crouch's book, Playing God. Now, for those of you who attend church here regularly, we're not talking about the Andy Crouch who goes here. Okay? This is Andy Crouch, the journalist, musician, and author. 
And he writes this book called Playing God, and we're going to begin with sort of an assumption, because I don't know where you stand theologically this morning. And here's the, the assumption, that God has designed us as human beings to flourish. God has designed us, humanity, to flourish. He's done so because God has made us uniquely his image bearers. We are his image bearers. Genesis, in Genesis, God says as he's creating man, he says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. You see, God Almighty, he is a creator and a cultivator. He's a creator and a cultivator, and he's designed us in similar manner because we are made in his image. We are made to be flourishers, if you will. It's what Crouch calls in his book, making stuff and making sense, sense of the world, if you will. And we are designed to flourish. Now, as a for instance, no matter where you stand in terms of the, the vaccine and the pandemic, the very fact that as human beings that we can create a vaccine is an indicator of that unique part of who we are as creators and cultivators. This is what differentiates us from the animal kingdom, that and worship, those two things. So we're designed for human flourishing. That's, that's uh, our big assumption. And then coming out of that is that when we step away from that idea of being image bearers and those who are to pursue uh, and perpetuate human flourishing, we ultimately end up pursuing counterfeits to find meaning and purpose in our lives. And so Crouch talks about two ways in which we seek to find meaning and purpose in counterfeits. And the first one is that we ask what is good to be great. And the second is that we play God with others' lives. Asking what is good to be great. That is, all those good things that we talked about in the beginning this morning, that, that God has given, that we ask them to be ultimate, to be in the center. They, we ask them to deliver something that they can't possibly deliver. This is in the Bible, we would call this idolatry. Now, you might think of an idol as being some like little statue overlaid with gold or silver that people would bow down to. And that would be accurate. It's even true still to some, in some places in the world today. But an idol is much more complex than that. And Crouch says this in his book. He says, idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. And then they fail more and more consistently over time. And then they ratchet up their demands. And this continues on. This perpetuates. And in the end, they fail completely, asking more and more and more and giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give us nothing. Now, if you're tracking this morning, you're probably saying, yeah, I can buy that, particularly in the area of, of sort of addictive behaviors, right? Alcoholism, substance abuse, sexual addiction, food addiction, any of those fleshly things that can become addictions, you might say, yeah, I can buy that. They promise something on the initial end, ultimately they end up not delivering, and they sell you out short and they demand everything. But this can also be true of relationships, friendships, marriage. It can be true of our career. It can be true of a host of things. In other words, when we ask something that is good to be great, to be ultimate, and to sit at the center of our lives, it becomes an idol. It's what we would call a counterfeit God. Well, the second area is a little bit different. He talks about playing God with others' lives. In the case of asking something that's good to be great, we in essence give away our image-bearing dignity and calling to something else that we put in the center. In the case of playing God with others' lives, we put ourselves in the center and we take away the image-bearing dignity from others. And Crouch says, interestingly enough, that there's a really obvious way that this happens that we would all agree on, and then there's one that might be a little bit surprising. 
He says the obvious one is, is that we play God with others' lives in the area of being ill-intentioned. That would be through violence or abuse. We play God and we rob human dignity and image-bearing from other people. You think of someone in a domestic abuse situation. You think of a, a despot or a wicked tyrant or ruler. Think of someone who's a part of, of managing the sex trade industry. Think of any number of positions, maybe a cruel boss, but someone who is playing God with others' lives, putting themselves in the center, and through poverty and abuse and violence, takes away the dignity of the human Im image bearing that God has created us for. That's the obvious one. It's what we would call malevolence. The other is perhaps a little surprising. It's through the well-intentioned. It's through the well-intentioned. That is, those that provide provision and protection, even benevolence, putting themselves in the center as great. And even through provision and protection, ultimately demeaning and taking the dignity of those that are image bearers. This is a, a really important distinction that we could spend a lot of time when it comes to Christian missions. What is the role of the missionary? And are we stepping into that place where we're playing God and we are the Savior? Or are we restoring human image bearing and coming alongside God's people? Perhaps a sort of mental image will help with this one because in both of these, asking something that is good to be great or playing God with others' lives, in, in both of these things are basically about a discontent about life, right? So think of this image. Think of sort of like yourself, like craning your neck to see over the next hill, as it were, to, to, to have, that, have an experience that brings you life fulfillment. It could be something as simple as your hopes and desires for the intimacy and fellowship of your dining room table at Easter dinner this afternoon that you need that to deliver a certain amount of satisfaction and, and that warm fuzzies for you. Or maybe it's something bigger. Maybe it's that craning your neck over the hill to see to that next promotion. If I get to that next promotion, that next pay bump, then I will be satisfied. I will have arrived. I'll be stable. I'll feel good about myself. Maybe the divorce is finally final and you're craning your neck over the hill looking for the next spouse. The next person, that one, they will bring me satisfaction. They will bring me the life. They will fill that void in me. On and on and on we could go. We ask good things to be great and we play God with others' lives. At least I do at times. Paul Tripp, this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I want you to hang with me here. He says this about all this. He says, you and I place much more importance on things than they truly possess. And when we do so, these things claim, they begin to claim our heart allegiance. And listen to what he says God does here, because it's actually mercy. So God ordains for us to experience that things break, physical things break and get old. People in our lives fail us. Relationships sour and become painful. Our physical bodies weaken. Listen to this one. Flowers die and food spoils. God allows this. Why? He goes on. All this is meant to teach us that these things are beautiful and enjoyable, but they cannot give us what we all long for. Life. He continues. In this world that's groaning, God is protecting our hearts. He is protecting us from us. In love, God allows these things, these creation, 
parts of the creation to die in our hands so that increasingly we are freed from asking earthly things to give us what only he can give. He works through loss to protect us from giving our allegiance to things that will never ever deliver what our hearts seek. I want to ask you in just a little bit of a reflective way this morning, a pastoral question. Where in your life are you asking good things to be great? Where in your life are you perhaps playing God with others that you would feel that sense of satisfaction, that you would feel life? That brings us to Jesus. Brings us to Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene as the ultimate image bearer, the image bearer. And Jesus comes to bring us the best life. In the text we're going to look at, Paul makes the case that life, real, meaningful, restored, spiritual life, is linked to Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, and his actual resurrection from the dead. The life we long for is found, Paul will say, in a risen Savior. Amen? That brings us to our text this morning. And we're just going to read a few verses from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. And I want you to note here that, that we're, we've been talking about purpose and meaning and sort of the emotional need for life. Paul's going to now make a very logical argument. And we're going to connect the two. Paul's going to do it for us uh, by the end and see that one actually yields the other. So uh, if you're following 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, he says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. We began with an assumption this morning. Let's continue with an assertion. Continue with an assertion. And here it is. If you come this morning or you're tuning in this morning and you're admittedly a skeptic, you're unsure about this Jesus stuff, you're certainly unsure about a miraculous raising from the dead, here's the, here's the assertion Paul makes, is that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, the Bible agrees with the skeptic. The Bible agrees with you if you are a skeptic this morning, if Christ did not raised from the dead. Now, Paul is writing, admittedly, this text to, for a, a, a little bit different angle than how we're approaching it this morning. Namely, Paul's writing to Christians who are gathered in this city called Corinth in this newly established church where this teaching had kind of leaked in that, there, that for us as Christians, there was no resurrection from the dead, that when we die, that was it. And Paul is teaching that because Christ rose, his life essentially equals our life. Our angle's a little bit different this morning. And I want to kind of walk through what Paul says specifically because he names seven things that are true, agreeing with the skeptic, if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Number one, ironically enough, he says if Christ is not raised, then Christian preaching or proclamation is in vain. In other words, it's empty. 
the use of someone's speaking gift, the, the research and the study and the hours put in, the time that you take to come in here week by week, it, it's empty. It has no substance if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Secondly, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith in Christ as a Christian is also empty. It lacks substance. It needs the risen Christ to provide that substance. Number three, he says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, he says, we as Christians are false witnesses. We are liars about God because we've said that he did raise from the dead. We're liars if he did not. Fourthly, he says, if Christ did not raise from the dead, your faith is worthless. Not only is it empty, as he said earlier, and lacks substance, but it's worthless. It's the least important thing in your life. Everything else you've got going on has more value than your faith in God, if Christ didn't raise. He says, if Christ didn't raise, then you are still in your sins. What does he mean by that? In other words, you're still under the judgment of God for your own sinfulness. Now, this one requires a little bit more biblical background. You see, the Bible teaches that as human beings, we are inherently sinful. What do I mean by that? From Genesis on, we have inherited from our first parents, as it were, Adam and Eve, a rebellious essence, nature, intrinsic makeup. In other words, our default response in our very nature is not to be drawn to worship and obedience to God Almighty, but actually the opposite. Our natural inclination is to push him away, to rebel and to disobey him. It comes from the inside out. And consequently, because of that, our physical, our extrinsic actions and attitudes and behaviors, I'll certainly speak just for me, are also sinful and rebellious. Paul says this in Romans 3. He goes on in Romans 6 and he says, therefore the price, the wages, in other words, what we earn by being rebels is the punishment and wrath of God. Why? He says, because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God is infinitely holy, infinitely majestic. And those, because as humans we have rebelled against a perfect creator, we are due an eternal separation. stands in the gap in my stead, in your stead, in our place, and he pays that sin debt, that penalty for us. Now, how can he do that? It's for two primary reasons. Number one, because Jesus comes and he does not have Adam's sinful nature, nor does he commit any sins of his own, the scripture says. And so he is able, because he has no sin, to absorb the punishment for our sins. But secondly, he can bear that because he is also God in the flesh. He is divine. He is eternal. And so he can take the full weight of the wrath and the judgment of God on himself. He is able. Now back to what Paul says. He says, if Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ does not save us. The cross of Jesus Christ saves us. The shedding of his blood to pay for my sins. But the resurrection validates it. It is God the Father's way of saying the sacrifice is sufficient. And we're going to come back to that one. I want to cover the last two really quickly. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have died, biblical language has fallen asleep there, uh, then they are lost. They're just gone. They perish. They're... Finally, he uses some pretty strong language here. He says, if Christ is not raised, O Christian, you are pitiful. You're pitiful. 
out there wasting your life, essentially. You see, if Christ is not raised, Paul in the Bible agrees with you, O skeptic. You already know where we're going this morning, though, and I love the way the NIV says it in verse 20. It says this, but Christ, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And this is the crescendo. This is the hallelujah. Paul is teaching the importance of the necessity, the explosive, eternal significance of the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is he did rise again. And that makes all the difference. It changes the game completely. It changes everything. Now, we didn't start with the first verses in this chapter. We jumped in the middle. But in the very beginning of the chapter, Paul had said this, and I'm paraphrasing him here. He's saying, hey, I've passed on to you, O Christian, the most important thing. And it comes in really four parts. We're concentrating on three of them. The first is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, not even according to Paul. Number two, that he was buried. He actually died. Number three, that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And the fourth is that he appeared to people, which is important. But Paul says the most important thing is that Christ died, not just that he died. As one scholar said, that's history. Christ died for our sins is theology. And it's the essence of Christianity. But we need his life. Because his life equals my life, both now and for eternity. Listen to what he says in Romans 8. He says, if the spirit of, of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal, mortal bodies to life through the spirit who lives in you. You see, the resurrection is necessary to both validate and empower the sacrifice of the cross to cleanse me and give me eternal life. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus is absolutely necessary to both validate and empower the sacrifice of Jesus to cleanse me from my sin and to give me eternal life. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Andy Crouch says this in his book. He says, this is why the love that is at the heartbeat of the Christian story, the father's love for the son and the son through the son for the world, is not simply a sentimental feeling or a distant ethereal theological truth, but it has been signed and sealed by the most audacious act of true power in the history of the world, the resurrection of the Son from the dead. You know, the early church father Irenaeus said this. He said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Do you know that God is greatly glorified in a fully alive human, in a human being who has the best life. But the second half of the sentence is, is equally, if not more powerful. I love what he says. He says, moreover, the life of man consists in beholding God. You want to know the best life? Irenaeus would say to you, the life, the best life consists in beholding God. We sang those words last week if you were with us. Behold him, behold him, behold him. And you say, how do, how do we behold him? I can't see Jesus risen this morning with my physical eyes. How do we behold him? We behold him through faith. 
If you are a Christian this morning, you can testify to that friend that's sitting next to you, or if you have somebody at your house at home watching online who maybe doesn't know Jesus, that while you have not seen Jesus physically, that you have beheld him, that you and your spirit know that he is alive today. Hallelujah. Behold him. So how do we apprehend the best life? How do we appropriate the cross and the resurrection into who we are this morning? Well, John the Apostle, near the end of the New Testament, he writes this little letter. And in that letter, he writes this sentence that's almost, if you will, a mathematical sentence. He says this. He says, he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. You catch that? He who has the Son has life. And you say, okay, well, how do I behold? How do I have him? Acts 16 tells us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. In other words, anyone who believes on him, you will be saved. Now, when, when the scripture says believe, it's not merely talking about uh, an agreement and sort of following Paul's logic and saying, okay, I, I, I agree with that, I believe it. No, going back to our earlier illustration, those good things that we've asked to be great and moved into the center of our lives or that playing God that we do, we go into the center of our lives. Belief and beholding and having Jesus is putting him in the center of our lives. It's apprehending and beholding him by faith and saying, Jesus, I am surrendering everything that I am and all the created good stuff that you've made, uh, pushing it out of the center. I'm putting you in the center and beholding you there. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that when we do that, the scripture says that the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. I'd love to spend more time on this, we can't, but suffice it to say, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. But you know, it doesn't end there. That's not the only thing. It also, if we go back to Paul's argument from logic here, it runs in reverse everything Paul has said in that argument. Listen to it as, as we follow through it, as we move toward our conclusion. If Jesus rose from the dead, ironically enough this morning, then Christian preaching is full of eternal meaning and significance. It is all of a sudden extremely important that we hear the word of God routinely in our lives. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then your faith in God is the most important thing in your life. It is more important than your marriage. It's more important than your career. It's more important than whatever you've been putting in the center. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then we all of a sudden, as Christians, possess the very truth of God. We hold it, and we hold it dear. And we are now truth proclaimers responsible to proclaim the truth of God to a lost and dying world, even the hard parts of the gospel. If Christ has been raised, then your faith has eternal significance and has great value. It is precious. Listen to this one. Oh, my friends, if Christ has been raised, you are no longer in your sins. You are free. If you have trusted in him, moved him into the center of your lives, I don't care what you have done. It matters not what you have done. If Christ has been raised as you trust in him, you're free. You are free. If Christ has been raised, then those who have died are simply secure in the very presence of God for all eternity. And if Christ has been raised 
then as Christians, we truly are possessors of the best life. And I would ask you, isn't that something you want? Now, we need to define the best life. I've been throwing that term around. This is not a life free of trial. This is a life that may increase in trial. And I can tell you, I don't have time to share about my week, but it's been a, a week of trial. Following Jesus is hard, but he never leaves us. He is always with us. And here's the amazing thing. Here's the, the great lavish grace of God. Remember where we opened, asking good things to be great, playing God with others' lives. When Christ is at the center of that, not only does he give us the best life in terms of our eternity and forgiveness and all that, but all of a sudden, all of those good things that we turn into idols, even ourselves that we make the Savior at times, all of a sudden, God redeems all of that. And he, is, in essence, gives it all back to us. Now I work and in my vocation, I delight and I serve as unto the Lord. Now I enjoy food and sex and, and all the good things that God has given in this life as actually an act of worship back to God. Now my relationships are lined up correctly in my life and actually bring honor to God. And oh, he even uses me to bring flourishing in terms of image bearing in the world around me and those that I have contact with. Oh, the lavish lavish grace of our great God. Amen? Ask the band to come out. We're going to move toward a closing song this morning. And I want to tell you as they come and kind of get themselves settled, we're going to end with a short quote from none other than Paul Tripp again. I think he's sort of preached about 30% of this sermon. But I think you'll see in this short quote how he pulls together all the things we're talking about. Here's the Holy Spirit thing. I pulled this quote weeks ago and didn't know that the band is going to conclude with the song Living Hope at the time. And this quote is all about the hope that Jesus is. So if you would, if you'd humor me this morning, just shut your eyes for about 30 seconds while I read you uh, what Paul Tripp says here, whether you're at home or here in the room, and listen to what he says. He says, whether you've realized it or not, he is what your hoping heart has been searching for. Because what you've really been searching for is life real heart-changing, heart-satisfying life, life to the fullest, life abundant. People can love and respect you, but they can't give you life. Situations can make your life easier, but they can't give you life. Locations can bring some changes to your life, but they can't give you life. Achievements can be temporarily satisfying, but they can't give you life. True, lasting hope is never found horizontally. It's only ever found vertically at the feet of the Messiah, the one who is hope. My heart for you this morning, my friends, is that you would know that the life that you're longing for is found in a risen Savior. So I'm going to invite you at the conclusion of our service this morning to stop by our Welcome Center. We've got a small gift bag for you there. If you're interested in taking the next step with God in your life and you want to walk with Jesus, if you're online, we'll provide a, a link on YouTube and Facebook where you can connect with, you, with us. We want to connect with you. We want to pray with you and help you take those next steps toward that best life that God's calling you to. Go ahead and stand and we'll sing together. between us.
God, what an amazing morning. What an awesome time to gather here to worship together. Had some people come up to me on the way in and said, I haven't been here in a year, but I'm back. And that's just so cool. We invite you to come back next week. We're gonna continue in the Gospel of John, looking at some of the final intimate moments Jesus has with his disciples. It's gonna be a great week. I'm gonna be preaching in John 15. We invite you to come back as we uh, transition to our final service at, at noon. For those of you excited to kind of hang out and catch up in fellowship, we would ask you to do that outside just so we have time to kind of turn things over a little bit. But uh, as always, as always, we're so glad that you're here. If you're new, connect with us. We'd love to meet you. Church, you are not dismissed. You are sent. We'll see you next week.